So go ahead and turn over to, to Romans 5. This is our text for this morning. Romans 5, 12 to 21 reads, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, all sinned. For indeed, it was in the world before the law was given. But sin was not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. So this passage is so unique. This passage is so dense. It's rich. You may have had a hard time following it. Uh, it, it is very grammatically uh, precise and, again, detailed. And in some ways, it's very repetitive. So it, it's hard to tell where he's saying something new or where he's sort of giving new light to something he's already said. So hopefully as we walk through this, you'll understand the basic meaning of this text. This text is a, it's a real gem in scripture. It's a real gem. It's very rare in scripture to have this, uh, this doctrine exposed like this. And so as we've looked through Romans, uh, we've seen that God credits his people with full righteousness. If you look at Romans from, from the start to where we've come, we do not see a Christianity that weighs good works against bad works or sins, and then weighs them up at the end, and whichever side of the scale is heavier, that becomes your destiny. That's not the picture of Christianity. The Bible Bible says that we are all the way condemned before, before his intercession, before his action, and then we become all the way justified by his grace. There is no middle ground. There's no third option in Christianity. We are all the way condemned fully. Jesus said those who do not believe are condemned already. But then when we are in Christ, we are all the way justified. All the way. As deep as we were condemned, that is how high we are justified. So that's the picture that we've seen so far when we look at justification, which is that idea uh, that that God declares us righteous, uh, righteous or sinless or covenantally innocent. He looks at us and says, these are not covenant breakers. These are covenant keepers. That's justification. 
And we looked last week at this idea of imputation. So not just that God declares us righteous, but that he actually imputes to us, which means gives credit to your account. So when you go to Canadian Tire and you get a refund, you know, they say, well, we don't need your card. It'll automatically be credited to your account. They could also say it's uh, that money will all automatically be imputed to your account. Imputation is, is something being transferred from one area to another, uh, either from an area of surplus to deficiency or from deficiency to surplus. And so we, we've looked at that idea that we already know what imputation is because we have all received an imputation from our natural father, <clears throat> our first father, Adam. Now that imputation was not a positive one. We received our first imputation of sin from our first father. That sin, the nature of sin, the condemnation of sin is passed on through blood. It's passed on from father to child, from father to child through every generation. It's, it's, a, it's a blood imputed uh, condition. But then Paul picks up on this idea of Adam and he brings us the new reckoning of righteousness that we get, the imputation from a second Adam. He compares Adam and Christ as two historic figures that we need to pay great attention to because they are the representatives of two, uh, the, the essential division in all of humanity can be divided into children of Adam, children of Christ, or brothers of Christ, descendants of Adam, descendants of Christ. So God changes humanity through those two historic figures and changes the destiny of their descendants. And so the first point that Paul makes here is that sin's infection is universal through the first Adam. This is the first three verses, 12, 13, and 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that one man being Adam, we just read about that, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Very basic case here. This is scientifically observable. This is an easy one to uh, absorb and adopt because this is what we see all around us. God promised Adam and Eve, the day that you eat that you shall surely die. He wasn't merely talking about physical death. He was talking about spiritual death. But death was the ultimate penalty for this sin. We already saw that the wages of sin is death. That death is the result, the natural result of sin. Sin is destructive. Sin is uh, corrosive. It, it deteriorates and, and corrupts where there is otherwise health. And so that's all of humanity receives this imputation of sin. It came through one man, Adam, and it spread to all men. That is 100% infection rate. Maybe you don't want to hear about infection rates this morning. <laughs> but the true disease, the true killer, the true threat to humanity is a sickness and a disease that has a 100% transmission rate, which means you know you have it. And the symptoms are symptomatic. It, it, it expresses itself. And we have all inherited from our father, Adam, this sickness, this sin. The reason is because we all have one common ancestor. We all have a common ancestor in Adam. So we are all very distantly related, <clears throat> some of us closer than others, but we are all most certainly historically 
related in Adam, which is, again, why it, people who allegorize Genesis 1, they miss this doctrine. Adam has to be a literal and historic figure in order for this doctrine to hold down. So anybody who says Adam is sort of a, fi a, a figurative representative, the Bible falls apart unless you take the Bible on its own word. Adam, because he's our blood relative, we have inherited the sin that he brought into the world. And because Adam is the father of all humanity, his sin spread to us all, which means every tribe, every tongue, and every language is subject to this curse. Sin is not a uniquely Christian problem or a Western problem or a white problem. Sin is transnational. It is global, which is, again, we see the corresponding salvation is just as wide as the curse is. This is why in heaven we see every tribe, tongue, and nation represented around the throne because everybody is a child of Adam and everybody needs redemption, which is, again, why Christianity is not a culturally local expression. It is, it is as Habakkuk says, it's the spread of the knowledge across the whole earth. The whole earth is subject to the spread of both sin and salvation. The reason, again, I touched on this, but the reason why death came through sin is first because God said it would. God said in Genesis 3, for in the day that you eat of this, you shall surely die. That's the number one reason why death comes after sin, because God said it would. There's no way to skirt God's commands and not get God's judgment. Whatever God says goes. Sometimes, you know, we might make threats to our children. If you do this, you will do this. And they can roll the dice and say, you know, mom and dad might be too tired to enforce that today. They might be, they might have forgotten. And we do. But God doesn't. And he said, when you eat this, you shall surely die. And again, and this is, this is sickening if you're a parent to think about Adam and Eve witnessing or, or experiencing the first murder as they did. It was their own two sons, their first and second born. For them, death and sin wasn't some far off problem that they could say, oh boy, it's bad over there. It was in their own family, that first murder, the envy that Cain felt for Abel, his discontentment with the pleasure of God on Abel's sacrifice. So they experienced the death of their own children before uh, they would go, which again, is a, it, it speaks to the unnaturalness of the presence of sin. Parents should always go before their children, but in a, in a world infected by sin, things like that happen. So they had to see the blood of their sin. They had to see the price of their sin in their own children. <clears throat> Often we see that in our own children, don't we? We see the, we see the cost of our own sinful choices playing out in the lives of our children. But it wasn't just physical death, it was spiritual death. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. The garden was the place of perfect communion with the Lord. They could hear the Lord walking, <clears throat> excuse me, they could hear the Lord walking through the garden in the cool of night, the cool of the evening. We, we don't have that anymore. <clears throat> We've lost that intimate communion with the Lord. It was a place where he spoke with them, you know, almost face to face. And so when they sinned, they were cast out spiritually from God's presence. That's spiritual death. And if you're born, which all of you have been, <clears throat> that's why you're here. If you are born, you are a son of Adam. You are a son of that family. 
That's the family that you are born into. Murderers, liars, prostitutes, the whole list of all of sin's effects. That's our family heritage. And here's the thing. When Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, they left it behind. And so when we are born into this world, we were born into this world. This may sound obvious, but there's implications. We come into the world after Eden. We don't get born into Eden and get our own chance to fulfill God's word. We didn't get to choose the timeline of our birth. We don't get to go back and make that choice for, oh, we could do better. It doesn't matter what you think you could do. We, we're here now. When you, when you look at that passage, God actually stationed an angel and a flaming sword to guard the entrance to Eden for the rest of time. There is no going back. We can't make a spiritual pilgrimage to Eden and go undo what Adam did. And so in Adam, we are locked in to this reality. Death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam is our covenant head. He made the choice for us that one covenant of works, do not eat of this tree. And they, they violated that covenant. And so the terms of that covenant are fulfilled in Adam's family. Sin equals death. Those are the terms of the covenant. So we've all inherited the consequences of breaking that covenant with God. And we stand in the failure of Adam as Adam's children. And and just before we go on, we're going to talk about the second Adam. So some people talk about this as uh, federal headship. Um, I'm not, I'm not highly learned on that, on that, concept but the idea there is that adam represents all of uh, physical humanity through his headship being the first man and this idea of headship actually goes through the entire scriptures it comes right down to the human family as well and so and i want to make a point here that when we come to this passage on adam in in the book of romans especially after reading uh Genesis chapter 3, what, there's a conspicuous lack of a certain name here in Romans 5. I don't know if you caught it. Because Genesis 3 is very clear that the serpent came to Eve. He spoke with Eve. Eve took the apple. And yet when we come to Romans 5, Eve's name is not even mentioned. There's a conspicuous lack of her name. And I've seen people, men and women, comb through the scriptures trying to find Uh, women preachers all throughout the Bible, but I've never seen one come to this passage and insist that Eve's name be inserted here because it's the blame for the fall of humanity. Genesis chapter three, we see very clearly Eve is the first one to be tempted and to fall into that sin. Theologically, when Paul comes to summarize that sin, who gets the blame? The head, the head of the home, the head of all humanity, in fact, whose name is Adam. Eve ate the apple first, we saw, and she convinced Adam of this new way forward. Yet Adam uniquely served as the federal head, both of his family and of all humanity. So as men, we can't repeat federal headship of all humanity. What's federal headship? So to to represent and to either bless or curse all those who come after. It's like a governing. Sort of a, a, a controlling governing force, yes. And so as men, we don't get to serve as the federal head of all humanity. 
all the good you want to do is not going to affect the entire world in the same way that it did for Adam. So on a natural level, this can't be repeated. However, the concept of headship does persist throughout scripture. It persists throughout scripture, meaning, and this is not the, the explicit point of this passage, but, I, but I, I don't want to pass it over without making it, that men, your family's failures and triumphs will largely be attached to your name. Your family's legacy will be attached to your name. The way, the way your family conducts itself in the world as it is will be attached to your name. Your children already bear your name. And they will also bear your influence. They will bear your, uh, <clears throat> your, your influence on their life and the way that you form them. And so headship is not the, is not, doesn't mean it's the sole authority to do whatever you want. That if you're the head of your home, you get, you get to call the shots. You get to pick what color the minivan is. You get to pick where vacation is. And you get to make sure you carve out Sundays for golf and napping. That's not what headship is. Headship is the privilege and responsibility of leading your people forward in obedience to the word of God. That's headship. This is where Adam failed, not Eve. Eve was created second. She was not designed to face Satan's temptation and deception alone. And when they had eaten, God came through the garden and called the name of Adam. He did not call Eve's name. This is what headship means. Adam was called to account for the sin of his family. And so women, your sins will reflect on your husband. Your words and your actions will reflect on and speak to the influence of your husband in your life. If he is godly, you will be following his lead. If he is lacking godliness, then encourage and respect him as he tries. Because it doesn't matter how poorly we have messed up this concept. And we have. Many families have blown this. Many men have blown this. Women have blown this. This is a hard concept to hold together. This is where Satan drives wedges in. We have all blown it. Nobody is standing on a soapbox saying, you know, look at me. But the reality is no matter how much we want to, we can not escape this structure. It is a natural and cosmic structure that can never be flipped. It can never be maligned and 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 deconstructed because biology holds the commands of God even within them. So Adam is called to account. He is blamed here as the federal head of the covenant. He is the one who is shown to be the, the accountable one for this sin. And that's just fine. That's the way the Bible lays it out for us. And that's the way we accept it. So because of Adam's headship over humanity, sin and death are universal. As long as the person is a human being, they're subject to this curse. And this is how far the gospel's scope must reach. Again, Adam in Adam are all children, are all people across every culture. That includes North Korea. That includes places you've never heard of. That includes languages that you will never understand. All in Adam are cursed because of this covenant headship that Adam had. But the passage does not end there because that is a terrible prognosis. It's a 100% infection rate and it's the curse of death. But verse 15, we see there's a free gift in a second Adam. Adam died and, lit and is in the ground, his body now. But God sent a second Adam. But the free gift is not like the trespass. 
For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And so Paul, he's setting this idea up that there was another one to come like Adam. We even see, and I didn't read that portion of the curse, but God says to Eve, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That's the first promise of the second Adam. That the first Adam, although he failed, he would give uh, birth to a bloodline. And that's a physical bloodline, by the way to a second Adam who would come after the likeness of Adam in the flesh, but he would come and he would succeed where Adam failed. He would come with a similar ministry to serve as a federal covenant head. And he would give to the people what Adam failed to give. That free gift we've already seen in Romans three twenty four is justification by grace. The free gift is already explicitly known in the context of Romans. It's justification, which means being called righteous by grace. You don't get called righteous by stacking up your good deeds. The Bible says that's not an option. That's not, that's not how you get to God. It's being justified by grace. By grace. It's the free gift of your justification, which is by grace through faith, we are washed of your guilt, and this gift came as a uh, through the second Adam. Christ came in the flesh. He came in the likeness of Adam, and he came just like Adam to impute to his covenant members to impute to something to them something that we otherwise do not have from surplus to deficiency. We are the deficient. Christ is the surplus. His righteousness flows from himself to his covenant members. And it's a gift because Paul says it came apart from the law. That's Romans 3.21. The law was not the measure of your righteousness in salvation. Because when you hold the law up to us now, we're still unworthy. We're still unrighteous according to the law. We're still separate in terms of our righteousness from God's standard. But that's why the gift, it says it came apart from the law. The law's function was not to give us salvation. It it never was. And so even when we hold ourselves up against the law now, that's not how we measure our salvation and our assurance. We measure that in terms of God's grace. And it says here also that God's gift arose because of Adam's sin. We talked about this last week, that while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. The free gift arose out of our failure. It was birthed in the context of our rebellion and our failure in Adam. We were all condemned. And through Christ, it says the many will be made righteous. Again, the New American Standard is is more clear here that it says the many. So the gift of Christ's righteousness does not have the same scope in terms of numbers as the curse of Adam's sin has. Adam's sin says spread to everybody. But Christ's righteousness, it says it will abound to the many. In other words, there's a narrower group who are going to receive the imputation of Jesus' righteousness. It's not universal salvation. 
Christ, when he died, bled and paid the penalty for those who are inside the covenant of Christ, the covenant, the new covenant. He did not die and pay for the sins of everybody in the whole world, as we looked at last week. The reason being, because if Christ died for somebody's sin, they would not end up in hell. That would be unjust of God. It would be unjust for Christ to pay the penalty for somebody's sin, and then also for God to punish them for their sin. So Christ's blood, as we looked at last week, purchased and won for himself a specific uh, people group, the many who are the elect, who are God's children. And the invitation is open to everybody, to the whole world. But those who come to Christ are of a more limited number than those who are cursed in Adam. And the reason that Adam and Christ are joined together is that the, is the link between the curse and salvation. That every child born of Adam is cursed, and so every child of God is blessed. And so the, the, these are parallel, these are corresponding imputations from our two covenant heads. Again, it's a global need, and that salvation similarly comes by one man, Christ. So that means that culturally, there is only one name by which men are to be saved all across the world. There is no plan B salvation. There's no other salvation that God provides for other cultures. Because he says the one man, Jesus Christ, came to undo the curses of the one man, Adam. And if in Adam, the whole world is in sin, then that whole world must pay attention to that second Adam. That whole world must embrace that second Adam. And I just quickly, I, I want to touch on a, a verse before we go on to the, the third section in verse 18. Because th this, this may be confusing, and I didn't cover them in the first section, but in verse 13, it says, Sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even after those who, whose sinning was not in the transgression of Adam. This is a little bit confusing. What do you mean God doesn't count sin? So what, what Paul is saying here is that if we are tempted to say, well, sin is not sin unless it violates a specific law. People have said this about other nations, you know, that surrounded Israel. You know, they couldn't have been in sin. They couldn't have been under God's judgment because they didn't have the law of Moses. And even right here, it says sin is not counted where there is no law. But what Paul's point here is to say, no, there may not be a specific record of the indictments. But in verse 14, it says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. In other words, long before the law came, the effects of sin were still at play fully. The evidence that men were still sinning against God is that men were still dying. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. In other words, we didn't need the law to figure out how to sin. It was in our blood and bones and DNA. And again, if you have ever been around young children, they do not need to be taught to sin. That is natural to them that's proof that without with or without the law we are in sin so i just wanted to clear that up because i know that can sound um a bit cloudy but as we just pass through this section 15 to 17 we see that these two men are corresponding that sin flows from one but righteousness flows from another a second adam came to impute to us in our deficiency for if one man's trespass Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and free gift 
reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And so what I love about here is that we are children of Adam in our first birth. We, we receive by default this sin. But then just as surely as we are condemned in Adam, so surely are we given life in Christ. He says, you reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And so our salvation, again, it comes to us today. It comes to us in the state that we are in. It, it undoes the curse. Jesus said, those who believe have passed from death to life. We've talked about this many times, but when we become a Christian, when we come to life in Christ, we come to life to reign in Jesus Christ on the earth. How much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Friends, you are fully alive in Christ. You have come to life to reign with him. Your bodies still bear some of the marks of sin, some of the effects of sin. And sometimes we fall into sin and, and we are grieved by that. But God has so transformed us because of the abundance of Christ's gift that we don't need to look back on the nature of Adam and say, are we sure it's dead? In Christ, our Adam's nature in us is dead. The consequence of Adam's covenant sin in us is dead. He has put to death the, the curse of the law in our bodies and given us the new covenant and given us life in Jesus Christ. That is the powerful parallel. Nobody questions the prevalence of sin in all mankind, but sometimes we doubt the prevalence of the gift of righteousness through Christ. Paul says they are of equal realities in Jesus Christ being the second Adam. And so as we turn now to verse 18, we're going to see the, a, a sort of a loose depiction here of two gardens and one salvation. Paul's wording here could not be more clear. Verse 18 says, therefore, just as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. He's putting on display here two contrasting historic events. Through one transgression, we already read about that in Genesis 3, right? One transgression. It's not like Adam and Eve were just piling up all of these little sins and God just said, all right, that's enough. That's, you know, one too many. It was only one sin that plunged us into damnation. It was only one sin that broke the covenant. And it was the first one. That speaks to the, the vast, the infinite holiness of God. One sin breaks us off from that covenant unity with God. One sin. Just as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Have you ever thought about that? The entire world is condemned in one sin of one man. Have we ever stopped to ponder the holiness of God? I forget which preacher said it, but somebody came up to him after a a beautiful long pastoral prayer and said, pastor, that was so wonderful. And the pastor rightly responded, there was enough sin in that prayer to condemn this entire auditorium and the whole world. That's understanding the holiness of God. Our prayers with the most minute hint of pride or self-centeredness or self-exaltation is enough to condemn the whole world. It is only by grace that we utter our prayers. 
By one trespass, all men were condemned. But here's the parallel good news. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That's how potent Christ's righteousness is. His righteousness is potent enough to reverse the sin that Adam's led to. For by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. What's he talking about here? We're talking about the Garden of Eden. We're talking about that moment where Adam disobeyed that one command. He had one command to keep. And the garden was full of beautiful trees. And yet in that, Adam was able to find disobedience. That first and great transgression. Well, what is that first and great transgression? It's the twisting of God's word. It's the twisting of God's word to believe that we are wiser than him. It's a setting aside of God's command in order to be a law unto ourselves. Hey, if I know good and evil, then I can live by my own standards. I can be a law unto myself if I become wise like God. Many use the scriptures to become wise unto themselves. It's that great commandment of exalting man over God's word. This happened, by the way, in the Garden of Paradise, in the light of perfection, under the shining sun of God's perfect communion. And yet death reigned from this point forward. Another interesting point is that the, the, the prevailing view of creation in our, in our culture right now is evolution. Evolution claims that death is the driving force uh, of human progress, of human advancement and productivity. That through death, we, we see a refining of, of biological genes. The Bible says that death is actually what prevents us from fulfilling our sinful potential. God said, let's cast them out of the garden before they take hold of the tree of eternal life. Because the worst thing in the world is if a sinful person lived forever. What a destructive instrument that would be. Same thing with the Tower of Babel. God confused their languages because they had a sinful motive. And he said, without the restraint of God's grace, these Brilliant people will come up with unspeakable ways of sinning. So God confuses and scatters those in wickedness to limit their potential. And death is another way that our potential for evil is limited. And so in that sunlit garden, Adam's obedience was tested. Adam's obedience to God was tested and there he failed. Christ came, Paul says, as a better Adam, as as a second Adam. And he, in this beautiful and perfect uh, moment of, of biblical and theological balance, Christ came into a garden in the dark of, and the gloom of the worst night in history. This is Luke 22. I just want to read four verses for you. Luke 22, verse, starting in verse 40, says, And when he came to that place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is Christ last evening with his disciples. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed. This is Christ in the garden of Gethsemane. Father, this is Christ's great temptation. 
Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. His resolve to obey God was tested here. But not my will, but yours be done. Those words that Adam could not bring himself to speak, Christ did. Not my will, but yours. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Hebrews says, you have not yet resisted, shed, uh, bl- um, you have not yet resisted sin to the point of the shedding of your own blood. How hard have you resisted sin? I mean, truly, how hard have you pushed yourself to resist the sin of Adam? Basically, my will, not yours, God. It says he became in agony and he sweat like great drops of blood and they fell down to the ground. And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is the second Adam in the second garden receiving that great second temptation in the same way that Satan approached Eve in the garden. He approached Christ in the garden. And gave that same temptation. Are you sure this is what God wants of you? Are you sure this is what God commanded you? And Christ cried out to his father. If there's any other way. If this is not what you have commanded. Then let it be done to me. Yet. Not as I will. But as you will. That is the moment of his righteous. Obedient to obedience to reverse Adam's sin. Here's the thing. We could never re-enter Eden. Or sorry, we could never re-enter Eden and undo Adam's failure, but we could also never climb up on the cross and atone for our sin or the sins of humanity. We we were stuck between them both. We are neither the first Adam nor the second Adam. We could not enter the garden and reverse Adam's sin on our behalf. And neither could we climb up on the cross and die to atone for our sin. All that would do is pay for our sin. It would not bring us to life and righteousness because it was Christ's act of obedience that was imputed to us. So in Christ, God looks at us and says, you are obedient like my son, Jesus was. You were disobedient like my son, Adam, but now in Christ, you are obedient like my son, Christ. The two correspond equally. Christ on the cross absorbed every sin of Adam's race for those who would be in him in faith. And in himself, he made a new race that was pleasing to God. To bring these two images together, we see that when God was finished his work on the sixth day, he saw that it was perfect. Jesus Christ went to the cross in perfection and unleashed a new creation and there cried out, it is finished. So Christ is that second Adam, that last Adam who brings righteousness through obedience to God, to all of humanity. So in many ways, friends, we are saved by works, but they're not our own. They're the works of Jesus Christ, which are imputed, credited to us. It was an act of righteousness through which he redeems the world. And so Paul, as he just wrapping up here, as Paul concludes this section in Romans chapter five. And so there's this, there's this euphoric climax that grace has abounded all the more where sin abounded. Has the curse gone far? Yes. But grace has abounded wherever the curse is found. There is no person in your life 
whose abundance of sin is beyond the reach of the abundance of God's grace. There is no sin. The, the more sin there is, the more proof there is that we are in Adam and we are not saved in Adam. It does not matter what one has done in Adam. It matters what one, where one is in Christ. So friends, do not write people off. Do not let people feel like their curse in Adam is ultimate because there was a second Adam. We can join ourselves in solidarity with the second Adam. And so Paul is wrapping up. There's an interesting section in, in chapter seven where he, he breaks this down at a different level. But Paul has wrapped up his argument about how far and deep sin went and how thoroughly God has reversed it in the gospel. And it's in the means of the very narrow, specific means of the blood of his own son. But the Christian faith is far more than a mere discourse on human nature. It's, it's much more than a philosophical idea about where does goodness come from? Where does evil come from? It is a thoroughly practical and demanding life in Christ, which sets forth for us calls to action against wickedness, both in ourselves and in the world. The, the, the scriptures and the Christian faith is a thoroughly practical and forward marching faith. We, we are not cloistered up in philosophical halls, you know, dissecting human nature. That's part of our understanding, but we move forward in practical obedience to God because of this salvation. And that's where we're going to get to next week in Romans chapter 6, which I'm very excited for. I'll probably say this again next week for nostalgia's sake, but Romans 6 is the first sermon I ever preached um, this section, and I was 19 years old. So I, th I think I'll hopefully do a better job next week, but this is the idea of instrumentation. So we not only become objects of wrath— in other words, a landing pad for wrath or a landing pad for grace. We're not just passive in the Christian life. We actually become instruments. So when we are transformed, we actually become instruments unto an end. A tool that is picked up in the hands of God to accomplish something. That's the result of this new righteousness of our solidarity with the second Adam. But in order to live productively as a Christian, we must rest on this assurance. You must embrace this assurance that God has done it all. He owns your life and your righteousness is Christ's. And it cannot be tainted. As Roland told us a couple months ago, our salvation is kept in heaven. It's unfading. It cannot be corroded or tarnished or destroyed in any way. We have this assurance. And if you don't understand that, you will lose heart when you fail because you will be mixing up categories. When you fail, when you make a mistake, when you, when you don't live up to the calling of God in your life, it is not your salvation that is at stake. It is your sanctification. It is your obedience. It is your continued solidarity with Christ and being formed into his image, which is an ongoing process. So don't confuse those categories. Salvation is all by grace. It came to us apart from the law. Our salvation is secure in the act of Christ's obedience, which is historically, it already happened. It cannot be changed. The sin in the Garden of Eden cannot be changed, nor can Christ's obedience in the Garden of Gethsemane be changed. In Christ, we are accepted. We are justified and we are righteous before God. This is the only narrative that makes sense of the world. It's the only narrative that explains the world as it is and offers a real remedy as far and as powerful as the curse presently is in the world. There are two Adams. In the first Adam, we die. 
in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, we live. That's the gospel. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing a final hymn.